1799, British biologist George Shaw stared down in disbelief at the specimen of an animal freshly discovered in Australia that had been sent to his lab in England. It was like nothing Shaw had ever seen before. The creature had the body of a furry brown cat, four short legs, and sharp claws over webbed feet, the tail of a beaver, and the beak of a duck. The specimen was so strange to Shaw that he thought, surely it, this must be a hoax, you know, kind of the practical joke of a mischievous taxidermist. In fact, Shaw was so sure that the that the, uh, the object before him was the scientific version of a practical joke that he carefully snipped the thick brown pelt around the creature's beak to reveal the stitches that he felt sure the taxidermist had fused to use to fuse the bird and beast together. But of course, Shaw found no such stitches. As you've probably figured out by now, Shaw had met the first duck-billed platypus ever seen in Europe. Even two decades later, scientists weren't convinced that the creature was legit. Anatomist Robert Knox announced that the platypus was a freak imposture and that the scientific community felt inclined to class this rare production of nature with, with eastern mermaids and other works of art. My goodness, the poor platypus. What did he ever do to those scientists, right? Despite all the evidence... For decades, people were skeptical that the platypus was a real animal. Apparently, friends, evidence alone is not sufficient for belief. What was humorously true about the platypus is tragically true when considering the identity of Jesus Christ. Evidence for Jesus alone, even evidence of Jesus' mighty works, his mighty signs alone do not save anyone. Those things must be combined with a humble faith in him. So please turn your Bible this morning to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, just past the midway point of this gospel of Matthew. It's on page 821 of the Bibles provided to you underneath your seats. Friends, as we have discussed multiple times, one of Matthew's main objectives in his gospel is to compellingly unveil Jesus' identity as the Messiah King and Son of God in fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and patterns that, that previewed God's salvation. But I think this, this goal of Matthew has been especially prominent as we've worked through chapters 11 to 15, now into 16. If we remember it was in chapter 11, the disciples of the imprisoned John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? In many ways, the trajectory of that question reaches a high point here in chapter 16 through Peter's confession, which we'll look at together in a couple of weeks. It's a high water mark in Matthew's gospel and in the entire history of salvation. Peter confesses that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. But in Matthew 11 to 16, kind of corresponding to this kind of escalating clarity about the identity of Jesus is an escalating conflict between Jesus and the, and the Jewish religious establishment. 
It seems that no matter what Jesus does, the religious leaders, are, they're always lurking right around the corner to question him and resist him and, and to even try to upend his influence on the people. So let's read this latest episode in the, religi- in the religious leaders' rejection of Jesus, starting in verse 1 of chapter 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, it's easy to see that this portion of Matthew divides nicely into two blocks. The first block of of Scripture, verses 1 to 4, shows the skeptical, sign-demanding unbelief of the Pharisees and Sadducees and Jesus' response to it. The second block, verses 5 to 12, shows Jesus' instruction to his disciples about the danger of such unbelieving religious teachers. Friends, every week I try to give you a main idea just for our help in kind of summarizing the passage, the main idea of Matthew 16, 1-12 that I pray will be the main idea of this sermon this morning. The burden is not on Jesus to prove himself to you, but on you to entrust yourself to him. The burden, friends, is not on Jesus Christ to prove himself to you, but on you to entrust yourself to Him. Two points this morning that mirror these blocks of Scripture that we read together. Number one, in verses one to four, the skeptics test. The skeptics test. Number two, in verses five to 12, the Savior's warning. The skeptics test, the Savior's warning. Friends, I pray that this morning for both Christians and non-Christians alike that sit under the sound of the Word of God this morning, I pray that that this word of the Lord might serve the purpose of reminding us today of our great need of Jesus, that we would see his glory and that we would submit our hearts to him. Number one, the skeptics test. Friends, if you remember from last week, uh, at the end of chapter 15, verses 21 to 38, they showed Jesus 
pivoting from the Jews to reveal his saving purposes to the Gentiles. So his, his mercy to the Canaanite woman, his, his healing of the, of the Gentiles sick and lame, his miraculous feeding of, of 4,000 of the Gentile crowds. It previewed Jesus' mercy in the new covenant in which all nations are welcome at the king's table. Well, verse 39 of chapter 15 says that after these things, Jesus got into a boat and went into the region of Magadan. In other words, back into Jewish territory. And whether or not the events that we just read about today in chapter 16 happened while Jesus was in Magadan, it seems clear that, that Matthew inserted this part of the story here to highlight the unrelenting opposition of the Jewish religious leaders. I mean, it just it feels like you get the sense that, that no sooner had Jesus and his disciples arrived back in the domain of the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were on the move against him. Look at verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Friends, just like our text last week, this is another instance of Matthew highlighting something surprising in a very understated way. It wasn't surprising that the religious leaders challenged Jesus. That was really a constant refrain all through his ministry. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees doing that together, united in purpose, I think Matthew wants us to drop our mouths in surprise. Like, why? Because although both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they made up the Jewish Sanhedrin, the kind of the religious supreme court of the day. They represented wildly different groups among the religious ruling class in Israel. For instance, the Pharisees were the smaller sect, but they were more connected to the people through their ministry in the synagogues. The Sadducees were the majority party on the Sanhedrin. They occupied the, the powerful positions in the Jewish priesthood. The, the Sadducees were kind of like the religious elites of the day. As you might imagine, they were more chummy with uh, the Roman occupiers than the Pharisees were. But the biggest difference between the two was theological. The Sadducees were really the religious liberals of, of their day. They re rejected any thought of a future resurrection of the dead at the judgment. They denied the idea of life after death entirely. They didn't believe in a spiritual world of, of angels and demons, whereas the Pharisees believed in all those things. The Pharisees, they were the religious conservatives. Theologically, they held their ground on the Bible's teaching about the future, resur future resurrection. But as we know, they fastidiously obsessed over obedience to the Mosaic law, which led them to elevate their oral traditions and how to apply the law alongside the law itself. And Jesus repeatedly indicted the Pharisees as hypocrites because even though they gave lip service to their love for God, their hearts were, were distant from him. The point is, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were religious rivals in Israel. It's like Sunnis and Shiites of the Muslim world today. But they had one thing in common. They hated Jesus of Nazareth. Friends, this was a textbook case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They were divided on theology, but they were united in their rejection of Christ. The Pharisees and their conservatism and the Sadducees and their liberalism both rejected the identity of Jesus and the rule of his kingdom. Notice Matthew outs the intention of their alliance right from the outset. 
The Pharisees and the Sadducees had not come as honest seekers. They hadn't come to engage in open and transparent dialogue. Verse 1 says that to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. To test him. Friends, this is the same word that Matthew used earlier in his gospel to describe someone else's approach to Jesus. Back in chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested, same Greek word, by the devil. Clearly, Matthew means for us to recognize, even by his word choice, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not carrying out the righteous purposes of God as they supposed. Rather, they were following in the footsteps of Satan and testing Christ. They had not come to test him honestly. They had not come to discern whether he was a true or false prophet. They had already made that judgment. In fact, the Pharisees had already begun to conspire how to kill him. They didn't come to Jesus that day to learn from him, to make a good faith effort to learn about him. They came to trap him and to turn the crowds against him. The Pharisees and Sadducees tested Jesus by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. In other words, do something, Jesus, to to demonstrate that you are heaven sent. Jesus, if you're the Messiah King, like you say you are, prove it. Well, of course, the sad irony is what? He already had time and time again. Think about it. Think about it. The Jewish scribes were on hand when the paralyzed man was let down through the roof of of the house where Jesus was teaching That one day in his ministry, Jesus pronounced the paralytic man, sins were forgiven, right? And then he gave the man the ability to walk to prove that he had the authority to forgive his sins. Members of the Pharisees were present in the synagogue on the Sabbath when Jesus mercifully healed the man with the deformed hand with his mere powerful word. The Pharisees were also there when Jesus delivered the blind and mute man from the demon that had tormented and disabled him. How did they respond to such mighty signs in their midst? midst? Well, on the former occasion, they indicted Jesus for blaspheming the Sabbath day. Remember that? And on the latter, they accused him of exorcising the demon and the power of Satan. Because there was no inkling of rationality or even-handed evaluation here. To put a cherry on top of all of their rejection and unbelief, chapter 12 tells us that, that immediately after delivering the man from the demon, uh, the Pharisees approached Jesus and had the audacity to do what they did in chapter 16. They asked for more evidence. They asked him for a sign. This was a standard play in their playbook. They're testing Jesus. They're operating in bad faith. Outwardly, they ask for a sign. But inwardly, they hope that Jesus failed miserably to give them what they asked for. They feigned sincerity, but it was a facade for their entrenched rejection of him. Friends, as we talked about this several weeks ago in in our sermon on Matthew 12, there is a a certain type of longing and desperation for a display of Jesus' power that is godly. Maybe you've come to, to church this morning and you are desperate for God to work. Maybe you're not a Christian and you've been praying, Lord, if you're there, show me. Friends, I think that type of prayer is a good, God-honoring thing to ask so long as it's honest and you're truly ready to respond to God when He reveals Himself to you. 
Friends, if, if that's you, I think the Lord is answering your prayer this morning by placing you under the sound of the preaching of His Word. He's placed you in the path to see the glory of Christ revealed in His Word. The Son of God who perfectly images and reveals the Father to us. If you've been praying that type of prayer, Lord, show me yourself, I trust you'll listen to Christ this morning and respond to Him in faith. There's a genuine type of seeking that evaluates the claims of Christianity with an open and honest heart. And no doubt we want to be the type of church that answers those type of good faith inquiries into Christianity. But friends, there is another type of seeking. It's a bad faith type of sign seeking that really is more like sign demanding. There's a type of request for Jesus to act that really is more of a smokescreen for your own predetermined rejection of Him. A rejection in which you've already firewalled from your mind and heart any evidence that might demonstrate the divine and messianic identity of Christ Jesus. Friends, it's this type of hypocrisy that garners Jesus' rebuke. Look at how He responds in verse 2. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And this is where it would be helpful for us all to be fluent in uh, biblical Greek. Because Jesus' response here is a bit of a play on words. It's actually a pun. In the original Greek, the words translated heaven and sky are the same word. So Jesus says, you want a sign from heaven, a.k.a. from God? Well, you seem to be pretty good at discerning the signs in heaven, a.k.a. the sky. It's a pun. Maybe you've heard uh, in, in our modern lingo, the sailor's proverb, red sky and morning. Sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. That's right. Well, apparently the ancient Jews recognized the phenomenon too. As clouds move from west to east, the dawn sunlight will tint them in the west, forecasting rain as the day progresses. In the evening, the same phenomenon suggests that the clouds have almost disappeared, bringing good weather instead. (laughs) Friends, the sad reality was that the religious leaders were better amateur meteorologists than they were expert theologians. They recognized the signs of the sky, but completely missed the signs of the time. They discerned the sun's tinting of the clouds, but missed the evidence that the kingdom of God had dawned in the person and work of Jesus. The king had come. His works were not shrouded by the night. They were manifest in broad daylight for all to see. And yet the religious leaders blindly ignored all the evidence. The Apostle Paul would say, Proclaiming to be wise, they became fools. Friends, if they would just have opened their hearts to Jesus by faith, they would have recognized that Jesus' works of healing foreshadowed the day when he will roll back the curse entirely under God's unending reign. His authority over the demonic realm that he showed in his ministry signaled the Messiah's crushing of the serpent's head in his final victory over Satan and death and hell achieved through his death and resurrection. If they had ears to hear, they would have recognized that Jesus' preaching about God's kingdom reign is the earth-shaking, history-shaping good news that it is. But instead, his message rattled in one ear and out the other without ever having landed on their hearts. 
The religious leader's greatest need wasn't more evidence. It was not a sign. Their greatest need was repentance. It was humility. They needed to turn from their sin and entrust themselves to Christ. Instead, their unbelief had caused them to reject what was just readily apparent and accessible to them. Friends, because of their unbelief, the reign of God that could have redeemed them remained hidden in plain sight from them. Friends, I wonder if you're here this morning with a similar demeanor toward Jesus and Christianity. Maybe you sit under the sound of God's word week in and week out, but you refuse to give your heart to Jesus because you're demanding certain things of Him. I just don't buy it. I've never seen the miraculous, therefore it must not be true. I'd become a Christian if, if Jesus would give me a sign to convince me, but so far there's just not enough evidence. Well, friend, first of all, just know that you're not alone in your skepticism. In fact, you're among some friends this morning in this room that used to be skeptical about the identity and claims of Christ, but are now fully convinced and follow Him by faith. Friends, we could take time this morning to talk about some apologetics in the Gospels. We could talk about why we believe God's Word is true, why it's real and life-giving. We could discuss in detail things like the timing of when the Gospels were written, why it was just far too early after the the ministry of Christ for them to be made-up legends, kind kind of coordinated to prop up a certain narrative. Friends, the Gospels contain detailed information and even the names of certain individuals who would have still been alive at the, at the time of the Gospels' writing. Let me just give you one example, okay? For instance, Mark in his Gospel says that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross to Calvary was the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's Mark fifteen twenty one. Friends, there's no, absolutely no reason for Mark to include those names unless his readers had access to Alexander and to Rufus. In other words, Mark was saying, Alexander and Rufus will vouch for what I'm telling you if you want to ask them. Or we could discuss how Jesus fulfills in stunning detail prophecies and promises made about him hundreds, thousands of years before he came in the Old Testament Scriptures. There are, there are countless ways to demonstrate the inspiration and inerrancy of God's Word. But ultimately, friends, ultimately the Scripture's witness to Jesus self-attests to its veracity. It is self-authenticating. Not only because of its inner cohesion and the absence of error in its original form, but most importantly, the Scripture is self-authenticating because of the way the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to testify to the glory of God in the face of Christ. The Scripture witnesses powerfully and compellingly to the beauty of Christ and the glories of God in the Gospel. So friends, if you're not here, if you're, well, I hope you're here. If you're here, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that would be an existential crisis if you're not here. Um, if you're here and not a Christian, Let me encourage you, do not wall yourself off from Jesus without first having worked through one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Working through it with an open heart and an open mind. Grab a Christian friend and study 
one of the gospel narratives together and then discuss what you're reading. Don't close yourself off to the possibility of faith in Christ without having first thoroughly and prayerfully studied the Scriptures together because these Scriptures reveal the glory and grace of Christ. But here's a question for you. Here's a question. If there were a sufficient answer for every question about faith in Jesus that you have, if there was a sufficient answer, would you trust in Christ then? If we could give evidence to meet all the skepticism about Jesus that currently resides in your heart, at that point, would you bow your knee to King Jesus in faith? Would you give your life to Him? Friend, if the answer that instinctively rises in your heart is no, perhaps the problem is not Jesus and the lack of evidence. Perhaps the problem resides in you. It's worth considering if your intellectual skepticism about Christianity is merely an educated veneer for your moral resistance to God and His Word. Friends, the problem is not the lack of evidence, but the abundance of our pride and self-worship. It's not the absence of a sign, but the presence of our unbelief. Friends, like the Pharisees, your greatest need this morning isn't a sign. It's not something spectacular or extraordinary to prove that that Jesus is who the Scriptures reveal Him to be. God has already given you what you need. His revelation is complete. He has spoken fully and finally in the person of Christ Jesus, His Son. The question is not, what does Jesus need to do to prove Himself to you? But rather, will you submit your heart by faith and repentance to Jesus? Jesus wraps up the exchange in verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Friends, apparently the Pharisees and Sadducees' testing of Christ not only mimicked Satan, it was modeled after rebellious, unbelieving Israel of old who tested God in the wilderness at Meribah and Massa. We read about it earlier in our scripture reading this morning. That's why he called them here an evil and adulterous generation. He couches his current generation in the language of rebellious Israel of old. And like Israel, the religious leaders' testing of Christ would indeed bring about divine wrath on themselves. But before Jesus walks away, before he walks away, notice what he does. He actually grants them a sign. It's cryptic for sure. It's not what they wanted or expected, but it is a massive sign nonetheless. Jesus calls it the sign of Jonah. Again, he repeats here what he told the Pharisees in chapter 12 about this sign of Jonah. There he he spells it out explicitly, here only implicitly. Jesus interprets the whole event of the great fish swallowing Jonah whole, housing Jonah in its belly for three days and three nights, and then vomiting Jonah out on the dry land. He interprets that as a preview of his own coming death, burial, and resurrection in Jerusalem. And friends, Jesus was not grasping at exegetical straws here, right? Playing Russian roulette with the text. It's totally random. No, Jonah himself spoke of God's salvation from his judgment in the fish in these very terms. If you want to hear more about this, you can re-listen to my sermon on Matthew 12, 38 to 50, or back in uh, February, my sermon on Jonah 2. Jesus simply took his cues from Jonah's word, which he clearly understood to be God's word. 
He saw in Jonah a God-ordained pattern that would be repeated in history in his own life. It's not allegory, it's typology. Jonah was the type, Jesus was the anti-type. Jonah set the pattern, Jesus is the great climactic fulfillment of that pattern. So, So what is Jesus saying? What's the point of this cryptic sign, this sign of Jonah? He's saying, I'm not going to stoop to give you a miracle on demand, but I will give you the greatest sign of all. Demonstrative proof that I am the long-awaited Messiah King and the Lord of heaven and earth. There is coming a day when I too, like Jonah, will be saved through the waters of judgment. Not for sins that I have done, but for the sins of my people. I will give my life as a sin-bearing sacrifice for all who would trust in me. You want definitive proof that I am who I say I am? I will die and rise again to reconcile sinners to God. Isn't it tragically ironic that in their hatred and rejection of of Christ Jesus, the Pharisees and Sadducees became unwitting participants in this very divine sign? Their cunning was part of the human agency that hung Jesus on the tree. But ultimately, friends, their sin only served God's sovereign and authenticating sign that Christ Jesus is the Savior of sinners who trust in Him. It's only through His death and paying the penalty of our sins that our sins are indeed forgiven. It's only by His vindication and being raised from the dead that we too share in the hope of of resurrection life in heaven one day through faith in Him. Friends, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the climactic sign that God has performed in human history. And this sign demands a response. Of course, most of the Pharisees and Sadducees missed the sign of Jonah too, didn't they? For most of them, their hearts remained entrenched in unbelief, and they, like blind guides, led the majority of Israel down the same path of judgment. But praise God, through grace, some of the religious leaders believed. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews who came to Jesus in John 3. The most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, is Jesus' word to Nicodemus. John 19 tells us that Nicodemus was among those who prepared Jesus' body for burial after his resurrection. In the Apostle Paul's testimony, he writes that he was a model Pharisee so zealous for for righteousness, so-called righteousness, that he killed Christians for his day job. And yet God in His mercy rescued him through an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Friends, the point I'm making is that even the most hardened skeptic's heart can change. Even the most proud, stony heart can melt through the working of God's grace and power through His Spirit and the Gospel. One more thing before we move on. Friends, it's not lost on me that whereas in years past it seemed like the main beef people had with with the Bible was scientific or historic, things have kind of shifted, haven't they, in recent years? Now, perhaps more common than an intellectual rejection of Christianity is the ethical or moral rejection of it. The Bible is so often considered regressive or even bigoted in its ethics, especially on sexuality and gender. Maybe that's you this morning. That's your perspective. You're so bothered by the Bible's moral perspective that you won't even consider following Jesus by faith. 
Well, friends, let me give you some advice if that's you. Let me recommend something to you. Don't worry so much about the Bible's teaching on gender and sexuality until you figure out what you believe about the central doctrines of the Christian faith. Seriously, like grapple honestly with the person and work of Christ, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, his bodily resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Nail down what you believe about that. You might say, well, I I just can't even think about that stuff because of how outdated and, and bigoted what the Bible says about sex is. Well, I would, I would recommend Tim Keller's response to this type of thinking in his book, The Reason for God. Keller gives a great line of thought. Friend, are you saying that because you don't like what the Bible says about sex, that Jesus could not have been risen from the dead? Surely you would not insist on that type of non sequitur in your arguing about this. But if Jesus is the Son of God, if He really has been raised from the dead, then surely, friend, you not only have to take his teaching seriously, but the only right response is for you to bow your knee to him as your Lord and your God. If Jesus is not who he says he is, if the sign of Jonah is just an elaborate hoax, kind of like the the scientists thought that the duck-billed platypus was a hoax, why should we even care what the Bible says about anything else, sexuality and gender included, if Christ has not been raised from the dead? However, if Jesus Christ has been raised, he is the king of heaven and earth. And surely that reality would cause us to yield our opinions to the authority of the entire Bible. The last sentence of verse 4 is chilling. So he left them and departed. Jesus' leaving of them here points to the withdrawal of his mercy. Friends, it's never a good sign when Jesus turns his back from you and walks away when he intentionally distances himself from you. Don't presume that you can have Christ whenever you want him. That if living for the pleasures and priorities of this this age don't work out for you, you can always fall back on Christianity as your escape hatch. You may have time for Jesus someday, but not, not today. Friends, don't assume that the spark of interest and desire that you have in your heart now will be there then. There may come a day when what was said of the Pharisees and Sadducees can be said of you. Jesus left them and departed. Number two, the Savior's warning. The Savior's warning. Let's read again starting in verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Now, let me just stop here for a second and say, I think Matthew, when he wrote this verse, had a wry smile on his face. It is comedy, right? Like, yet again, the disciples forgot to bring bread. Like, how is this possible? They need a designated bread guy in the worst way. I guess that's what Jesus was, amen? Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus seized upon their focus on bread to give them an illustration about the spiritual danger that lurked in the teaching of those religious leaders. Throughout the scripture, yeast or leaven became a poignant image 
for the pervasive spreading danger of evil. Any bakers in the house today? Any bakers? No one? No one? No bakers? One? Two? Man, this illustration is going to go great. (laughs) How much yeast does it take to cause dough to rise? A lot? No. I'm guessing that in your homemade bread recipe, yeast is the ingredient for which the smallest amount is prescribed. All you need is a little pinch of leaven for it to pervade every nook and cranny of the dough and cause it to rise. Friends, so it is with the power and influence of wrong teaching. Even the smallest amount in a life or in a church can grow to have devastating effects. Friends, Jesus here is kind of giving the photo negative of his parable of the leaven in Matthew 13, where the yeast pictures the growth of the kingdom of God. Here it's the opposite. It pictures the growth of something insidious, something that harms as it seeps into every pore of what it touches. Amazingly here, the disciples again completely missed the point. They were so focused on their material need and and that the spiritual reality of what Jesus was talking about just just flew right over their heads. Verse 7. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is a tricky little section. I think Jesus' rebuke of his disciples reveals that their lack of faith in him and their misunderstanding of what he was saying, it overlapped, right? In fact, I would say the one contributed to the other. Their, Their little faith and their obsession with their material need contributed to their dullness regarding the spiritual realities that Jesus spoke about. And friends, because their theological thinking was immature, so was their faith. They even missed the lessons about physical provision that Jesus' miraculous teachings taught. Think about it. At that very moment, they were in the boat with the Lord of creation who could multiply bread on the spot to feed thousands. In their obsessive focus on their need, they had completely forgotten that Jesus had demonstrated twice that he was their great provider. But notice what in particular Jesus drew their memory to about these two miraculous feedings. Was it the mechanics of the miracle, how he did it? Maybe the type of bread that he multiplied. Was it wheat or rye or a little, you know, multi-grain, maybe some gluten-free mutant bread, I don't know. I play. No, Jesus prompted them to remember how many baskets of leftovers they gathered and presumably the significance of those numbers. Twelve baskets for the feeding of the 5,000 Jews, picturing Jesus' provision for each tribe of the house of Israel. Seven baskets for the 4,000 Gentiles, picturing the fullness of His provision for the nations. And Jesus wants them to remember, while He's reminding them that He's their, spirit, their physical provider, to remember the, the spiritual significance of this physical miracle. 
while all the while challenging their little faith. Brothers and sisters, the disciples needed to come to grips with the glorious identity of Christ yet again. He had come to lead the new exodus, right? He had come to bring the new manna. He's the bread of life. He had come to host the Messianic feast for the nations. He's come as the Savior. Instead of navel-gazing and, and groveling about their need, they needed to put their trust in the identity and authority and glory of Christ Jesus once again. But unfortunately, friends, what we saw in Simon Peter when he waffled on the water, we now see from the disciples on the boat. When they took their eyes off Christ and put them onto themselves, their faith dwindled. Beloved, I wonder how often we miss the importance of what Jesus wants to teach us spiritually because of our obsession with our material needs. I'm guessing we're a little bit more like the disciples than we care to admit, aren't we? I appreciated Phil's prayer this morning and drawing our attention to that. When inflation rises, when our hours get cut at work, when we lose a job, when medical expenses pile up, when the car, once again, unexpectedly breaks down, instead of learning to grow in trust in our faithful and sovereign and good provider, we obsess about our lack of bread. Instead of a maturing faith in God's ability, we stunt our spiritual maturation by our preoccupation with our need. Friends, we would do well to remember what Jesus taught the disciples and the crowds all the way back in Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Actually, though, this important lesson was secondary to the main point that Jesus is driving home that day on the boat. He warned his disciples about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so pernicious that it could permeate their lives like yeast permeates dough. Okay, so, so what is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? I mean, that's kind of a strange way to phrase it, right? Considering the differing theology of these two groups. How could Jesus talk about the singular teaching of plural diverse groups? Well, remember what they had in common. Their rejection of Jesus Christ. Their common teaching, their common leaven was that which bypassed faith in Christ. The Pharisees and their theological conservatism had erected man-made rules to merit God's favor. Friends, the Pharisees' legalistic teaching bypassed the grace of Jesus the Sadducees and their theological liberalism refused to accept the realities of God's power in their day and in the life to come. Their arrogant teaching bypassed the reign of Jesus. Both groups missed Jesus entirely. Beloved, we would do well to remember that no matter if it's on the theological right or the left, any body of doctrine 
without Jesus at the center of it, damns. If you tolerate even a small amount of false teaching, friends, don't be surprised if it exponentially grows so as to eventually dominate the whole. Just think about the last few decades in American evangelicalism. It shouldn't surprise us at all that many churches that that imbibed the so-called social gospel in the last half of the 20th century, well, those same churches now fully embrace the LGBTQ agenda in the first half of the 21st century. Many of them do. Why? Because yeast always grows. Once the enemy gets his foot in the door, so to speak, once he sees the door open, he will slither right in and stay. Friends, let us beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. A Christless religion will deaden your soul and it will destroy our church. Friends, if you've ever wondered why we so often rehearse the ancient creeds here at Redeeming Grace Church or articulate the Christian faith, look no further than the dangerous leaven of false doctrine. If you've ever wondered why we try to weave our church's statement of faith into the the fabric of our corporate life together, friends, look no further than the the destructive yeast of false teaching. A few years back when we put together the elders' vision, the, the DNA of Redeeming Grace Church that we hope will mark our fellowship for years and decades to come, why did we list unrivaled gospel and biblical preaching as items 1A and 1B in the, in the elders' vision? Because, friends, if the centrality of the gospel and the authority of God's word are not what permeates our body, you can be sure that something else will. Beloved, it's my job each week to preach clear, faithful, expositional sermons. But it is your job to be an astute and engaged expositional listener. We are in this work of expositional preaching together. I do not care at all if you remember verbatim my main idea, even by the time you get to house to house this week. I promise, I do not care. But friends, I care a lot, the elders care a lot, that you listen carefully, that you weigh what I say in the sermon against the Word of God, and that you commit to order your life in light of the truth that is preached. It's interesting, each time this image of harmful leaven appears in the rest of the New Testament, it's from the Apostle Paul warning particular local churches about the leaven of sin and bad doctrine. And in each of those cases, in 1 Corinthians 5 and in Galatians 5, Friends, Paul did not place the the primary responsibility upon the elders to get rid of the leaven in the church, although we play a huge role in that. He placed the responsibility upon the congregation itself. It's almost like Paul had read Jesus in Matthew 16 and 18 and understood that Jesus gave this authority over doctrine and membership to the gathered church. In Galatians, Paul blistered this church for tolerating the legalism of those that that taught that Christians must be circumcised to be part of the people of God. Galatians 5.7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It started out small. Just a just a just a little tolerance of sub-biblical viewpoints, right? Just a a little smidge of of, of bad theological triage. 
just, just a pinch of elevating secondary matters as though they're primary or lowering primary matters as if they're secondary. And before you knew it, that church was in danger of losing the gospel altogether. Brothers and sisters, if you'll allow me to kind of fuse the, the two images that, that Jesus gave about leaven for a moment. The only way that we can know and experience the leaven of the kingdom of God growing in our midst is if we guard against the leaven of Christless religion. The only way we can participate in the expansion of God's saving reign through Jesus is to make sure that Jesus remains at the center of all we do. Why? Because it's the gospel of Christ that contains within itself the very power of God to save sinners and to transform lives. The Apostle Paul, clearly reflecting on Jesus' teaching, wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. May the Lord give us grace and humility to proclaim this message faithfully until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would plant your word deeply within our hearts. Oh, Father, we want to be marked as people of faith, not those whose unbelief and rejection of Christ warranted his walking away from them. Oh, Father, we ask that you might, as we already prayed once this morning, overcome and prevail over our unbelief with your truth. Father, it is sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. Give us grace to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.